When Israel normalized relations with the UAE and Bahrain in 2020, it unleashed all kinds of change. But what also happened was a generational shift. The sons of Arab royalty are getting closer to thrones of their own. The Israeli occupation remains center stage for Palestinians, but in other countries, memories of wars fought with Israel are now decades away. And in countries like the UAE, it's not just in the halls of power where that shift is playing out. You talk to younger people, and not a majority of younger people, I don't think, but there are some younger people who say, essentially, what have the Israelis ever done to us? And at the top, it's an attitude that's paying off. Tens of thousands of Israelis have flooded into the Gulf as their new favorite hotspot for international tourism. The UAE is the first Arab nation to sign a trade deal with Israel. Dozens of flights will be made per week, allowing for the economic partnerships forged and tourist excitement to transform the region. So what does it mean for normalization to become normal? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. In recent years, the boycotts of Israel that make headlines are often by individuals or institutions. But the boycott by Arab governments has been around since before Israel's first days as a modern state. And that's what I'm discussing with Greg Karlstrom, the Middle East correspondent for The Economist and my former colleague at Al Jazeera. I'm usually based in Dubai, previously in in Lebanon, in Egypt, in Israel, uh, and in Doha. I'm in Washington, D.C. at the moment, but usually I'm in the Middle East. So, Greg, it has been almost two years since the agreements known as the Abraham Accords with Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. They've been called a peace deal, which they really weren't. They've been called a normalization agreement. They've been called a regional realignment. How would you describe the Accords? I think it's fair to say peace agreement is the wrong word. There never was a war between Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain. There was no sort of hot conflict to be ended. So yeah, I would say it's a normalization agreement. And it's an agreement that was framed initially as being uh, about peace with the Palestinians as well, right? Uh, It's become, I think, increasingly clear that what this was, was uh, a security pact uh, and secondarily an economic pact between two countries uh, and then three countries with Bahrain that, that have a lot of common interests. So what has been the outcome since it was signed? What's actually changed? I think the first most obvious thing that changed was that uh, you started seeing Israelis in the UAE and in Bahrain. I remember being in Dubai in December of 2020, so a few months after the accords were signed, and also right when Israel was lifting its COVID travel restrictions. Uh, And I remember being surprised just getting into elevators or going into hotel lobbies and and constantly hearing Hebrew, which living in the Arab world, you just don't hear that language uh, very often anywhere. Um, So there really has been a a huge influx over the past uh, two years of Israeli tourists to Dubai, to Abu Dhabi, to Bahrain. Uh, There's been, I think, a lot more than anyone expected uh, making the trip over for tourism. Mm. Is coexistence something that you hear more now, since 2020, is that a thing that comes up in conversation or not really? 
I mean, it comes up with the government uh, a lot. It is an official message that they are trying to put out. Uh, they had a year of tolerance shortly before the accords were signed. Uh, the government is building uh, a sort of religious compound uh, in Abu Dhabi, which will have a synagogue, a church and a mosque. So there is this official narrative of coexistence and tolerance that the UAE and Bahrain as well uh, are both quite keen to push. In terms of how ordinary people feel about it, it's it's hard to say. You do have some people, Emiratis and expats, both who say, you know, over the past two years, I've I've interacted with Israelis. I never interacted with Israelis before, and and you know, they turn out to be human beings. And I was surprised by this. And and you know, we can get along. And then you certainly have other people who can't get past the occupation, and of course, all of the the political issues surrounding Israel and Palestine. So there's a top-down narrative, but how people feel from the bottom up is more complicated. Yeah. And so for listeners who may not remember the details, there has been a boycott of Israel around in some form in many Arab countries that included the UAE for decades until recently. Can you remind us of what that boycott looked like? Well, it looks a bit different in every country. Uh, I guess you have some countries, places like Lebanon, say, or Tunis, where there are very strong public feelings uh, about Israel and about the Palestinians. And so the boycott means certainly no Israelis come to visit. There is no trade. There are no commercial ties between those countries. Uh, and even things like Israeli culture or, or culture that involves Israelis. You know, there are movies that have Israeli actors or actresses. Uh, that are not allowed to be released in some Arab countries because the authorities deem that, uh, you know, crossing the, the picket line, if you will. And among Israelis, there are also various perspectives about its impact. Many say Israel is now so integrated into the world economy that it's become boycott-proof. But for earlier decades, exports were about 10% smaller than expected, attributing that to the boycott. I asked Greg what he made of that figure. It's hard to say, right? It's a counterfactual to talk about uh, what the Israeli economy would look like if it was more integrated into the Middle East. It's hard to pinpoint a number, but it certainly does mean that the economy is smaller than it should be. Uh, you know, this is a problem across the Middle East, actually. Countries in the region don't trade with each other as much as they should because of politics, conflict, bureaucracy. And then, of course, Israel, you could say, is the least integrated country in the region because so many of its neighbors boycott it. You know, there's 400 million consumers in the Middle East. Most Israeli firms don't have access to most of those consumers. Uh, there's, there's no labor from other countries coming to work in Israel. So it is really cut off economically from the rest of the region. That absolutely has had consequences for its economy. But when it comes to the Gulf, Greg says the boycott hasn't been absolute. The security ties, the technology and weapons sales, the intelligence sharing, it was an open secret for a long time. Certainly Israelis were not allowed to visit uh, before the accords. They were not allowed to openly visit. Um, but you did have Israelis who came. You had uh, you know, spies and other intelligence officials who would come to visit. You know, I've, I've met Israeli businessmen who came to various Gulf countries before 2020. They would do it on a second passport, but everybody knew who they were and they knew who they were doing business with. It was never the sort of absolute boycott that you saw in other parts of the Arab world. But the impact on daily life was still noticeable. No tourism, no products on the shelves, and a customs office dedicated to the boycott. Since 2020, the changes have been at all levels. 
The UAE has hosted Israeli leaders from illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. Meanwhile, on the shelves, you can find Israeli products from occupied territory, such as wine from the Golan Heights, which Israel annexed from Syria against international law. You know, you walk into walk into the liquor store in Dubai and you look at the, the shelves of wine and most of them now have a, a shelf or two that is Israeli wine, wine produced in Israel or produced in the occupied territories. That obviously was never the case before 2020. Uh, you have Israeli produce that is popping up in supermarkets. There are conferences. So, yeah, there there has been in sort of very short order uh, in the Gulf countries, uh, a level of, of commercial and cultural normalization that has set in. We might be about to see more because this year there was another agreement that in some ways might be even more historic. So on May 31st, Israel and the UAE signed this free trade agreement, the first ever between Israel and an Arab country. Tariffs will be eliminated on 96% of goods. The target is an annual $10 billion of bilateral trade. I read a thousand businesses will open by the end of this year. Billions of dollars are to be made. How significant was this? I think we'll know in a few years how significant <laughs> it was. You know, there there was so much hype when these accords were signed. We heard, you know, there were going to be tens of billions of dollars worth of exports within a few years and millions of tourists going back and forth. And how much of that is actually going to materialize? Uh, it's going to, to take a while to find out. So, yes, the expectation is certainly that lots of companies are going to open in the UAE, that you're going to have probably hundreds, if not thousands of uh, Israelis who move there to do business, get residence permits, move in. Um, but but again, how much of this is, is actually going to happen and how quickly is, is a longer term question. What does seem clear is that the UAE is also a launch point for expanding trade. And one market Israel's keen on is Saudi Arabia's. It's the largest Arab economy and the regional heavyweight. But so far, that government has stayed out of open normalization. And they've cited the Palestinian issue as the reason. Here's Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan speaking to CNN last year. There is, of course, a a normalization deal on the table. It has been on the table since 2002. It's called the Arab Peace Plan. And even before that, we had the Fez Initiative, which was uh, uh, presented by the kingdom in 1982, which uh, puts forward the prospect of full and complete normalization with Israel uh, in return for uh, a, a just settlement to the Palestinian issue. But even without that settlement, it doesn't mean the Saudis aren't involved behind the scenes, as I asked Greg. We've been talking about normalization with the UAE, but there has also been almost a silent partner, and that is Saudi Arabia. They've said there would be no normalization until there was progress on the Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiation process. Have they walked that back? Is that changing? Well, I mean, that's what everyone said before they normalized, right? That's that's what the Arab League said decades ago. And then in the past two years, we've seen four members of the Arab League uh, normalize with Israel. What's going to happen with the Saudis? They are on a path, certainly, towards normalizing with Israel. I don't think it's going to happen while King Salman is still alive. I think as long as he is here, it's unlikely to happen. 
Uh, once there's a change of power, once Mohammed bin Salman, as expected, uh, ascends the throne, uh, I think that that certainly removes an obstacle to normalization. So right now, we've seen reports of Israel set to agree to a security arrangement that allows Egypt to transfer control of a couple of islands to Saudi Arabia. This is a crucial sea passage to the ports of Jordan's Aqaba and a lot in the south of Israel. The strait is Israel's only shipping route out to the Red Sea. Is this part of that road to normalization that you were talking about with Saudi Arabia? I think the Americans are trying to make it look like it's part of that road to normalization. I'm not sure it really is. Uh, I think the fact that, that this agreement is being negotiated and sort of mediated by the White House has a lot more to do with Washington's desire to get back in the good graces of the, the Saudi crown prince. Of course, President Biden vowed to make him a pariah when he was a candidate. That was back in November 2019. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. But now that oil prices are through the roof, uh, suddenly he's changed his tune on that. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on June 6th. When the president came into office, we were determined to make sure that our decades-long relationship with Saudi Arabia was serving our own interests and our, our values as we move forward, but also preserving it, because it has also helped us accomplish many important things, and that's largely what we've done. From the perspective of normalization, uh, the idea is, as you said, this arrangement on security uh, to do with these islands. It's not a, a huge deal. The desire for normalization is driven by security concerns. It's driven by economic concerns. Uh, they're on that path regardless of whether or not America negotiates this deal. Where does all of this leave the United States? Biden is reportedly planning this trip to the region. And I saw one of your tweets, which I love reading because you give us analysis with snark. You write, you know you've made a hash of your Saudi policy if you're forced to travel to Riyadh in late June or early July when even Saudi officials don't want to be there. So what is the issue for the U.S.? What is Biden trying to do? It really comes down to oil. I mean, I've been asking people that question in, in Washington this week. And the answer that I keep getting is just go to the gas station and look at gas prices. And that's what he's trying to do. I'm not sure how much the Saudis can actually do on oil. But from the perspective of the White House, it's sort of we need to try everything to get gas prices down, because if we don't do that before the midterms, the Democrats are going to get absolutely battered. Where does the U.S.'s desire for more normal relations between Israel and Arab states play into this? Because I'd like to look into the symbolism of all of this. How big of a prize is Saudi Arabia for Israel? And, and vice versa, how big of a prize is Israel for Saudi Arabia? And why does the U.S. care? I would say Saudi is a bigger prize for Israel than Israel is for Saudi in terms of, of the bilateral perception of normalization. You know, for the Israelis, this would be uh, having normal relations with the, the center of political and religious power in the Arab world and, and more broadly in the Muslim world. Um, and it would be a, a coup for them to secure that. For the Saudis, the relationship with Israel, they're already getting many of the things they want to get out of it. And I think normalizing, they get fewer benefits out of normalizing 
uh, than the Israelis would. The one sort of corollary to that, though, is for the Saudis to do that would be a huge boost to their standing in Washington. The Biden administration decided to make public an intelligence assessment that said Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved the capture-kill order for journalist Jamal Khashoggi. President Joe Biden announced on Thursday that the U.S. would no longer support the Saudi Arabia-led military campaign in Yemen. The, the kingdom's standing in Washington is, you could say, probably at an all-time low right now. Uh, normalizing relations with Israel would not totally wipe that clean, but uh, amongst a lot of people in D.C., I think it would certainly boost their standing. In all of these conversations, including ours, we touched on this, but you don't hear much from these countries about Palestine anymore. Is that the sacrifice for the financial gain? I think part of the problem, and, and you hear this from people across the Arab world, and you hear it from Palestinians as well, part of the problem is that there's plenty to talk about in Palestine, right? There are the the sort of major atrocities, the wars in Gaza. There are the day-to-day indignities and atrocities that come with an occupation. There's plenty to talk about in Palestine. But the Palestinian leadership has no direction for, for how to deal with any of this. So you have this divided, atomized Palestinian community with no political leadership. And what you hear across the region is, you know, people saying, well, I want to talk about Palestine, but, but like, what am I advocating for? What am I pushing for? Uh, when, when there is no essentially direction for the Palestinian cause, because you have this collection of essentially failed old men who are in charge of it. Do you think that this means that we've seen the nail in the coffin for the Arab boycott of Israel? I think what we're heading towards is a, a sort of split. You know, you look at the countries that have normalized over the past two years. Uh, the UAE and Bahrain, of course, are both monarchies. Morocco is a monarchy. Sudan did it at a time where it was controlled by a military junta, which has since uh, taken even firmer control of the country. and. These are all autocratic countries that did this. You look at some of the countries that are still maintaining a a quite strong boycott of Israel. Uh, It's Iraq, it's Tunis, it's Lebanon, varying degrees of democratic, but all countries where the public has some say in politics and, and the political system is in some way responsive to public opinion. And so it seems almost like what we're heading towards is a situation where uh, autocracies are willing to normalize, for the most part, with Israel and countries that are a bit more democratic uh, are not. So, Greg, at the risk of asking you to look into a crystal ball here when it comes to this normalization question, what do you foresee based on all your travels and your talks with people in the region? It's always difficult to say because anything can change in the region, right? I think certainly with Saudi Arabia, we are on a path towards them normalizing with Israel. Now, that depends on how long the king is alive for. That depends on, you know, if there is another catastrophic war in Gaza, uh, it'd be very difficult for the Saudis or for any Arab country to normalize in the aftermath of that. Depends on what happens in Israeli politics. But I think for the Saudis, there's also some benefit in dragging this out Um, as a way to, you can gauge the mood, the public mood in the country, around the region, uh, but you can also extract benefits from, particularly from America, by doing this. You know, again, as you mentioned, we see now 
uh, American envoys rushing off to the Middle East to try and negotiate security arrangements for these two uninhabited islands. Not the sort of thing you would think that a top White House advisor would be spending time on, but he is spending time on it because the Saudis have once again dangled the prospect of taking steps toward normalization with Israel. So uh, I think, you know, even if they could do it next week, it's actually advantageous for them to, to drag this out for a while and, and squeeze as much as they can out of it before they finally go ahead and do it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliay, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Aya El-Milek and Adam Abugad. We'll be back on Wednesday with a guest host behind the mic. 